The following lecture was delivered at the 17th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Pinchas Alush now presents his lecture, What is a Soul? A few years ago, a beloved doctor in our community who works at the local hospice of the Mayo Clinic calls me and says, hey, there's a man here who's 87 years old and he's dying and he wants to see a rabbi. I dropped everything and went to see him. She greets me. She tells me he's in room number four. I walk into room number four and there is Sherwin Bash this 87-year-old Jew who wanted to see a rabbi. The problem was that as soon as I walked in, Sherwin tells me, you should know that I despise rabbis. I said to Sherwin, well, I thought you called me if you want. I'll make a U-turn and leave the room. He says, no, 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 stay here. But, and he continues, I've avoided rabbis since my bar mitzvah. I said, boy, Sherwin, that must have been hard. There are as many rabbis as flies here in America. But why? He says, I don't know. I just can't stand what you stand for. So I said to him, so then why did you call me? And he responded, I don't know. But I'm about to die. And something in me tells me that I need to see a rabbi before I die. We immediately proceeded to say some Jewish prayers, the Shema. We put on tefillin. And as we did so, Sherwin began to sob like a little child. And he shared with me his deep regret that he really never reconnected to his soul, as he called it. The next morning, I was told by this beloved doctor, Dr. Shiri Etzioni, that Sherwin passed away with a smile on his face. And I said to myself, wow, there was one of the most moving displays of what a Jewish soul is all about. Because we may ignore it for 87 minus 13 years. He had a bar mitzvah. We may avoid as many rabbis, as many Jewish connections as possible. But eventually it haunts us and haunts us until it prevails. That's the story of the soul. But what is a soul? I want to go to a very controversial biblical story. This is a story about Abraham who was probably the most hospitable man of his generation, right? A forefather Abraham. In fact, it says, Vaita Eshel Shava, that he planted an Eshel where he lived in Be'er Sheva, the city that still exists in the south of Israel. And immediately the commenta commentaries tell us that Eshel really refers to his bed and breakfast place. That's what he had. That's where the BNB got it from. Abraham had an Eshel. Eshel is the initials of Achila Shtia Levaya, or Leina, which means eating, drinking, and escorting, because he will escort you out, or it also means sleeping. So it was a hotel and a place to eat. And he would feed everyone in the Negev Desert where he lived. Now, it's not easy to feed everyone in the Negev Desert. I don't know where his resources came from, but he was so devoted to hospitality that that's what he did. But then the Midrash comes and spoils it for us. Because as you may know, after they ate, 
Abraham would tell his guests, well, now you have to bless the giver of the food, God himself. And they would say sometimes, no, we don't want to. Do you know what Abraham would do? Tell me if that's a hospitable man. He would say to them, well, if that's the case, if you are not willing to bless the giver of the food, you have to pay an exorbitant amount for the food that you just ate. Because who else in this Negev desert would give you water to drink, food to eat? And they would be almost forced to bless God. This is exactly here what this Midrash says. But my question to you today is why? Why would he force them? And is a forced blessing even worth anything? And wouldn't that ruin the relationship that he had formed with his guest through love, through food? Why do that? But Abraham knew what we all know intuitively, consciously, or subconsciously. And that is that every one of us is really made of two facets. In fact, it's fascinating to me that the word in Hebrew for faces is in the plural tense. There is no word for one face in Hebrew. I know the Hebrew speakers here can attest to that. Even the word pan is not a word, certainly not a biblical word. The word for face in Hebrew is panim, which again means faces. Why is that? In English, you have face and faces. In French, you have visage and visage with an S in the end. And in other languages, you again have a word for one face and a word for multiple faces. But the Hebrew language acknowledges that every one of us has at least two faces. The soul face and the body face. No one has just one face. Psychologically, you can go in a different direction. Every one of us also has multiple faces. For example, the face I have with my spouse is not the same face I have with my children. Face I have with my children is not the same face I have with my colleagues. Face I have with my colleagues is not the same face I have with strangers in the supermarket. We have multiple faces, but at the very root, we have two faces, the body face and the soul face. What Abraham was trying to do is to aim for that soul face in all of his guests. He would say to them, you know who does not want to bless God? Your body. Because your body is selfish. Your body, all it wants is to take care of itself. But your soul recognizes that there is a God. Your soul is almost the opposite. It is selfless and divine-oriented. So please, for the sake of your soul, or of your wholesomeness, of your ability to relate to your panim, to both of your faces, bless God. He did not, that God, did not say that, God forbid, to scare them or to strain his relationships with them, but he said them rather so that he can make them complete. That was the reason for Abraham's strange behavior towards his guests. But as Abraham did with his guests, friends, I think we ought to do with ourselves. Because in order to live wholesome lives, we too cannot just pertain to our body, we must pertain to our soul. And our soul has completely different desires. Our soul has more intangible desires. Our soul wants to love. Our soul wants to give. Our soul wants to share even soul sheets. Our soul wants to be as other-oriented as possible. Our body wants to sleep, wants a good massage, wants tangible stuff, wants to eat, food. It wants to be me-oriented. 
The perfect human being is a person who can find a good balance between the soul and the body. How do you do that? For that, we have to go to this very shocking, dare I say, Talmudic story right here at the bottom of the page. This is a story from the chapter of Tanit, a story that became quite famous, that speaks about Rabbi Elazar. He was once walking along the road coming back from his house of study in Migdal Gedor. Now, by the way, I have to ask the Israelis, especially among us here, do you know where Migdal Gedor is? I looked it up. Migdal Gedor doesn't exist on the map of Israel. Gedera exists, right? Maybe that's similar. But Migdal Gedor, and apparently the Maharal, one of the great Kabbalists of the 16th century of Prague, he's known for the creation of the golem, if you know that story, how he created this monster to fight the anti-Semites of his town. Whether it's a true story or not, that's questionable. But the Maharal says no. What the Talmud is saying here is that he came from Migdal Gedor. It's not a physical place, it's a spiritual place. Because Gedor in Hebrew means fenced. Gader. And that's because the man was fenced from the world. He lived in his own tower up there. And he was completely divorced from humankind. But this was the type of man, Rabbi Lazar, man who lived in his own world, comes riding on his donkey, and he sees this man who appears to be very, very ugly. This man tried to be polite. And he says to Rabbi Lazar, Shalom Alecha Rabbi, peace upon you, teacher. What does Rabbi Lazar respond? It's shocking. Rabbi Lazar not only did not return a greeting, like I know all of you would do, but instead he says to him, empty one. How ugly are you? Are all of the people of your city as ugly as you? What? Rabbi Lazar? Rabbi? Speaking in such terms? How ugly are you? All the people of your city as ugly are you? Now it continues. The man who was quite brilliant responds to Rabbi Lazar and says, well, I don't know. But what? don't you go to the craftsman who created me? And you complain to him how ugly the vessel is that he made. <laughs> Rabbi Lazar immediately understood, gosh, I did not give him an insult, I gave God an insult, the craftsman who made him. So he immediately asks for forgiveness, and the man refuses to forgive him. Rabbi Lazar eventually reaches his city, and there he had students waiting for him. His students came and said, Rabbi, 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 Rabbi. And this man, who was insulted, says, hey, you guys think he's a rabbi, he's a rabbi? He insulted me in the worst of ways. He's no rabbi. And again, Rabbi Lazar comes off his donkey and asks for forgiveness. And he says, first you have to ask forgiveness from God. And then you can ask, and then I can maybe forgive you. That's the story. In short, again, you have the reference here at the bottom of the page, straight from the tractor of Tanit and the Babylonian Talmud. But again, I ask, what was Rabbi Lazar doing? What was he saying? Would any one of you speak like that? Especially to a stranger, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the 1960s devoted a whole talk just to that Talmudic passage. And his take to me is it's just fascinating. What Rabbi Lazar was trying to do is exactly the same thing that Abraham was trying to do. But what he was trying to do is penetrate the human being that had an ugly externality, an ugly surface to him. It was empty, as Rabbi Lazar himself said. He seemed so disconnected from his roots. But he did so in a harsh way, 
because Rabbi Lazar deducted, justifiably or not, that doing it in a loving way would not work with this guy. He concluded he perhaps needed what we know as a shock treatment. Let me shock him. And then maybe, maybe, this man will dig right through his emptiness and find that soul. And that's exactly what happens. Rabbi Lazar tells him, you're ugly. You're so disconnected from your true self. That's ugliness. And immediately the man is awakened. And he says, go to the craftsman that made me. I may be ugly, but I'm just as connected to God as you are. Eventually, the man awoke. But this was Rabbi Elazar's take, the same as Abraham's take. These people, when they saw others, they did not see bodies, they saw souls. They did not see human beings, they saw human souls. And no, they did not see just what you may appear to be. They saw what you can and should be. And they penetrated and penetrated in order for you to awaken that soul and to live according to its message. Now, to go a little deeper into this, I know some of you may have studied the first chapters of the Tanya, but the Tanya speaks about two different souls. We have the animal soul and we have the godly soul. The animal soul is like the body, interested in itself. The godly soul is interested in its mission, in doing what God wants of it in this world. It does not ask what's in it for me. It asks what's in me for it, for the mission, for the world, for the betterment of the world. Now, by the way, these souls speak to us all the time. You know when they speak to us at the beginning of the day? Right when we wake up. The godly soul says, go back to, uh, wake up, you have a purpose to fulfill. And the animal soul says, go back to sleep. Which reminds me of the cute Hasidic anecdote by Rabbi Naftali of Rapshitz, one of the great Hasidic masters, who had a tough time waking up as a child, and his father came to him and said to him, hey, Naftali, wake up already. You should learn from your animal soul. Look, your animal soul wakes up early to put you back to sleep. So he wakes up, you too should wake up and learn from your animal soul. And Naftali was so brilliant, responded, but father, that's a very bad example. Because my animal soul does not have an animal soul to put it back to sleep. So it's easy for it to wake up. I do. <laughs> so the same rabbi, who when he was just six years old, someone came to him and said to him, I'll give you a coin if you can tell me where God is found. Naftali Rapshitz responded, I'll give you two coins if you can tell me where he cannot be found. But there was the sharpness of this child, speaking of the animal soul, that it does not have an animal soul, so for it, it's quite easy to wake up, but that's when that animal soul, and conversely, the godly soul speaks to us each and every day. And then there's a battle between them. And the Tanya deducts something that I think no one else, especially before the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneel Zaman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, deducted before him, and that is that they, that may be a lifelong struggle for most of us. We'll have these two souls, these two facets, those panim, speak to us forever, as long as we're alive. No one will eventually completely be triumphant over his animal soul. But again, the goal is to have the godly soul awakened. No matter how ugly you may be, to use that Talmudic analogy, 
or are defiant or atheistic you may be, to use the midrashic analogy about Abraham. That really is the goal. And I want to go very, uh, to, to, to explain this better maybe, I want to go to the very essence of creation. Because it's quite fascinating, and by the way, biblical skeptics love this. If you go to the very essence of creation, you see that there are two stories of the creation of Adam. So the skeptics say, you see, ah, oh, there's two authors to the Torah. Maybe there's two gods. But there's a deeper lesson here. The first time we read about the creation of Adam, first human being, is in Genesis 1, 27, 28. Again, you have it right here. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him. And then God blessed them. First of all, by the way, first time we encounter the creation of man, he's created together with Eve. We think that Eve came later. Zachar bra'am. Male and female, he created them. We apparently glued back to back. And when God eventually created Eve, you just had to slice the back into two, and we had two human beings. It's interesting, because speaking of equality, which is the big notion of today, we have it right at the root of creation. Its forms are different. Its symptoms go in different directions. But there we have the essence. But Adam and Eve were created, and then God says to them, listen, Go and be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the heaven, and over all the beasts which crawl on the earth. That's, less, that's creation one. Creation two comes later, Genesis two. And it's a different type of creation. But that's when we read about how God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, nishmat chaim. And then man became a living soul. Then God planted a garden eastward in Eden. God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to nurture it and to preserve it. So what's happening here? Are there two stories of creation? Were two human beings created all together? We thought it was only Adam and Eve. Was it someone else? Why two stories? But here comes Rabbi Yosef Ber Soloveitchik, who's the founder of the Yeshiva University, one of the great scholars of this past century. And he speaks about this revolutionary idea, by the way, that's quoted by David Brooks, a New York Times journalist, and many others. But he speaks about this idea that, no, God did not create, God forbid, two human beings, nor were there two authors to the Torah. But rather, every one of us has what he calls an Adam 1 and an Adam 2. Adam 1 wants to be fruitful and multiply and conquer the world, have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc., Adam 2 is not interested in that. Adam 2 in Genesis 2 is a living soul. If Adam 1 wants to go outwards, Adam 2 wants to go inwards. If Adam 1 wants to build cities, Adam 2 wants to build himself. If Adam 1 is interested in amassing fortunes, Adam 2 is interested in amassing the fortunes of his soul. And that exists within each and every one of us. It's at the very essence of our creation. Unfortunately, in our society, we've become experts at developing Adam 1. We see them all over, on the cover of magazines, newspapers, and on names of buildings, hospitals, and museums. How about Adam 1? 
Sorry, how about Adam too? How about that living soul? I'm reminded of a dear friend from our community too, Bill Smith, Zeb ben Mordechai, Allah v'shalom, who told me that he had a very big friend in Chicago where he came from that um, made it, made it. And he decided to buy for himself the first time his dream car, which was a Bentley. So he bought his Bentley, and he went on his first ride with his Bentley, all proud of himself and showing off. And he doesn't even pay attention to the speed he's driving at. And he drives into a little alley of the narrow Chicago streets, and all of a sudden, he hears a loud boom on his car. He realizes someone threw something at him. What was it? A rock. A rock that had dented his brand new Bentley. And he comes out of his car and he's mad. And he sees that there were a bunch of children playing and he sees one particular child is trembling. He knows that he's going to be punished. So he goes to that child. He says, did you throw that rock? How dare you? I worked my entire life for this Bentley. And the child is shivering and scared. Tells Bill Smith's friend, you don't understand, look, look. And he points to the middle of the street and he sees a little child who had fallen from his wheelchair. And this child is shivering, says, that's my brother. If I hadn't slowed you down, you would have run over him. And he realized immediately, his big mistake, his big mistake that he was too engrossed with his Adam 1 and not at all in tune with his Adam 2. When he went home, it's Bill telling me the story. This man decided never to fix that dent on his Bentley. So that it stands as a lasting reminder that you cannot be too involved with Adam 1 that you forget Adam 2. My friends, that's really what the soul is all about. The soul wants to be, not to do. It wants to be a human being, not a human doing. In order for it to be, it needs to be fully in tune with its heavenly mission. With what, again, God wants from it, not what it wants from God. You know, the great quote that says that sometimes... We can't just tell God how great our problems are. We have to take, tell our problems how great God is. Sometimes the focus must be on what God wants from us. Viktor Frankl, who's known for his book, The Man's Search for Meaning, himself was a Holocaust survivor, writes in that book that the goal of life is not to ask what I want from life, but rather to ask what life wants of me. And in that we will find meaning. And that's what the soul wants, what, the life, what life wants of me, true meaning and true purpose. And there I quote here Rabbi Yeshua Levi Horwitz, who too came from Prague, just like the Maharal that we quoted before. Rabbi Yeshua Levi Horwitz uh, was also known as the Shlach Kadosh, because he wrote a book called Shnei Luchot Abrit. Shnei Luchot Abrit is the acronym of Shla. So he was the Holy Shla. By the way, he was a Horowitz. I don't know if there's any Horowitzes here in this room, but if you're a descendant, of Rabbi Yoshua Halevi Horowitz, the Shla Kadosh. You should know you have special instructions, some bizarre ones. Like, for example, he asked that all of his descendants do not eat turkey. Why? Good luck on Thanksgiving. But I don't know. Maybe because he didn't trust the, the kosherization 
the slaughtering of turkeys in Prague. I don't know. But it was an interesting man. But Rabbi Yeshua Levi Horowitz writes as follows, and I think this paragraph really summarizes exactly what is a soul and what it wants. It says as follows, and I think because it's so good, we have to read every word of it. The soul was placed into man and was sent to this world, the world of physical action, to work it and to guard it. Again, quoting Genesis 2, right? Referring to the study of Torah and fulfillment of mitzvot. In this world, the soul is like a stranger in a strange land because it is a resident of the supernal world. My beloved rabbi would often say we are not in this world. We, we, are not, we may be in this world, but we are not of this world. That's what this is referring to. This can be compared to a king who sends an envoy from his trusted personal staff to a foreign land and commands him to engage in a particular task. The king urges him, be very cautious and rigorous with the work of your mission. Similarly, God, the king of kings, takes the soul of its heavenly chamber where the divine presence is felt and sends it to this world, placing it in a body. God gives a man, man his commandments, his mission, being the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot. And as long as man is in this foreign land, he should not take his mind off his mission even for a second. Again, we may be in this world, we are not of this world. That is what a soul is. We're a divine particle roaming this earthly world. And we have to fulfill our mission. Now, everyone has their general mission, and I want to go deeper into this. Because as Rabbi Yoshua Levi Horowitz, the general mission is to fulfill mitzvot. Learn Torah and fulfill mitzvot to do good. Which reminds me, by the way, of what the Lubavitcher Rebbe told the CNN reporter in 1991, when the CNN reporter said to the Rebbe, what is left for Mashiach to come? And the Rebbe responded, what is left is that everyone must increase acts of goodness and kindness. So there is that general mission, but also a very particular mission to the soul. And I think that if we can be in tune with this mission, we'll figure out more or less how to live a wholesome life, a life where our panim is fully displayed. And for that, we have what I call the pop theory. If you've ever heard it before, but very briefly, the pop theory stands for four different words. P stands for personality, O stands for opportunity, the other piece stands for people, and the fourth piece stands for places. If we can be in tune with the pop theory, we'll know what our soul is and what it requires of us. First P, let's go there, personality. Every single one of us is unique. The Talmud says that that just as, as our faces are different, so too our personalities are different. By the way, even identical twins, right, are completely different. I don't know if anyone has an identical twin here, but they are different in their personalities. They might be similar in many ways, but also very different. Now, how do we figure out what our personality is? We should ask ourselves, what's our skill? What's our talent? Maybe some of you are musicians. God gave you that gift in order for you to actualize it. Maybe some of you are artists. Maybe some of you are athletes. Maybe some of you are poets. Maybe some of you are mathematicians. But if we have a gift, it's because God wants us to use it. And he wants us to use it because that's the mission, part of the mission of our soul. So it would behoove us, I do that to my children, to myself too, especially before Rosh Hashanah. It would behoove us to ask ourselves, what do, you, what do I think my skills are and am I fulfilling them? 
That's one. Two opportunities. Just as much as we must be focused inwards to figure out what our personality is, we also have to be focused outwards to be open to the opportunities of life. You may have heard of the great story of Nicholas Winton. I'm sure you have. Nicholas Winton, who saved many, many children from the claws of the Nazis, of the evil Nazis, just before the Holocaust. How so? He was a stockbroker in Great Britain. I'll try to condense the story into just a few sentences. Stockbroker in Great Britain. A simple guy. And in 1938, he gets a phone call from a friend who says to him, Nicholas, hey, you've got to help me out here in Czechoslovakia. I see that there are Jewish families who are abandoning the children. have no food for them. We don't know what to do with these kids. Nicholas went and says, leave me alone. I was about to go on a ski vacation in Switzerland. I don't want to do this now. He says, but it's urgent. Nicholas Winton says, I'm open to the opportunities of life. It's not just about me. I'm going to come help you. Make a long story short, he goes and helps his friend by creating kinder transports that would take these children on trains, transport them all the way to Great Britain where he was from. He would find for them adoptive families who could take care of them until these uh, families could be reunited, until the war was over. Nicholas Winton wrote down all of the names and numbers and images, also had some passport pictures on that, in that booklet of all of those kids. And he didn't stay in touch with them. Once they were in adoptive families, they were safe. He didn't have, need to stay in touch with them. His last kinder transport, by the way, left on September 1st, 1939, which was the first day of World War II, when Germany invaded Poland. His train was intercepted by the Nazis, and the 200 kids who went on that train were all butchered to death. And that's when he said, OK, I can't continue with this. But by then, he had saved, he had saved some 660 children. Again, he never kept in touch with them, but in 1987, his wife is cleaning up his attic, and she sees this booklet with names of children and passport pictures. Now, he never told her. That's how humble he was. And she says, what is this all about? At first, he didn't want to tell her, but says, okay, these are children are saved. Now, it was her turn to keep a surprise. She contacted as many of those children, and then she organized a surprise birthday party for him. And in that surprise birthday party for him, she said, let's go to a movie theater. Takes him to a theater. And by the way, you can see this on YouTube. And this woman goes up on stage. Instead of a movie being shown, she takes out that book with the names of the children and the pictures. And she all of a sudden says, I see there's a Vera in this book who was a child from this place. Is she by any chance here in this room? And Vera all of a sudden stands up next to Nicholas Winton. But it doesn't end there. She calls out more names and more names. And eventually he realizes that the entire room was full of those children who were now much older that he had saved. Now, dare I ask, how many children did he save? We know that the scientific number is 660, but he had saved so much more. These children had children who had grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So he really saved thousands, evoking the words of the Talmud, whoever saves one soul saves an entire world. Now, Nicholas Winton today passed away at a very old age, 106 years old, not too long ago, I think in 2014. But Nicholas Winton today 
He's not recognized as a stockbroker. He's not recognized as a British citizen. How is he recognized? As a righteous of the nation who saved hundreds, if not as mentioned, thousands of children. Why? Because he was open to the opportunities of life. He did not ask what I need from life, what life I need from life is a ski vacation. But what does life want from me? To go to Czechoslovakia and save those children. So there you go. P, personality, you have to know yourself and actualize the skills and talents. Opportunities, you have to be open to the opportunities of life. People, that's the third of the four words. The people that we meet are a part of our purpose in life. To quote the ethics of our fathers, Ben Zoma Omer, Ezo Chacham Alomed Mikol Adam. Ben Zoma says, who is wise, he who learns from everyone. So all the people that are in our lives are there for us, first and foremost, to learn from them. Doesn't matter whether it's the janitor in the, your office or whether it's uh, the, the greatest rabbi you've ever met. Every human being has a lesson to teach us. That's the purpose of that human being. Otherwise, God would not have put that human being in his life, whether you like them or dislike them. Where you, whether you're in a loving relationship with them or you're not in a relationship with them at all, maybe for what you think is justified reasons. But they are there to teach us a lesson. And sometimes, People are there also for them to learn from us. That's P, the, th the second P or the third word, people. Then the last P is places. See, the places we go to are also part of our soul's mission. Sometimes we think we're going to Hawaii on vacation, and that might just be the reason. But there's always a deeper reason for every single one of our travels. Maybe we'll meet someone there that we'll have an influence on. Maybe we'll say a prayer and we won't even realize it, but it will sanctify the place. Those holy words will make that place holy. There's always a sibap nimit, as the Lubavitcher Rebbe would call it, an internal reason for every external reason of travel. I'm reminded of how just a few months ago, my beloved wife sent me with a shopping list to a local supermarket in Scottsdale, Arizona, Fry's. You may know, know of it. It has a massive kosher section. And the, one of the items on my list was to go and buy chicken for Shabbos. Fine, I'm not a great shopper. I don't even know what type of chicken and leg quarters or the full chicken or whatever it was. And I'm there. I'm saying to myself, gosh, why do I have to come here? And don't tell my wife that, by the way. <laughs> but someone all of a sudden taps my shoulder. I turn around. And I see this man I've never met before. And he says, excuse me, are you a rabbi? I said, what are you talking about? What makes you think I'm a rabbi? <laughs> we broke the ice. And he says, no, 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 no. I don't mean to bother you. But the only reason I'm asking is because I just lost my father three days ago. And I need a place to come and say, Kaddish, do you have a congregation? I said, yes. Please come tonight at 7 p.m., tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., and come say Kaddish. Today is a devoted member of our community. Why? Because I finally understood that the place I was sent to was not just to buy chicken for Shabbos, but rather for me to meet that Jew who needed to say Kaddish for his father. So, yeah, we have the general outline by Rabbi Yoshua Levi Horowitz that we are not here just for ourselves. 
We are here to fulfill a mission. That's what the soul is, and that's what it needs. We can follow that mission through the pop theory, and I think we'll have a pretty good idea of what our soul truly needs. But I want to conclude with yet another quotation and then one final story. This is a quotation from the book of Samuel, by the way, and I picked this one particularly because, as we all know, Rosh Hashanah is coming about. And on Rosh Hashanah, we read about the story of Samuel. The story of Samuel, as you, many of you may know, Samuel was one of the greatest prophets, if not the greatest prophet after Moses in Jewish history. But Samuel had a mother by the name of Hannah. Hannah could not give birth to children. And she poured out her, hearts, her heart sorry, to God, as the verse itself says. Eventually, she makes a pledge. And she says to God, if you give me a baby, a child, I promise you I will devote that child to you. Shortly thereafter, she is blessed with a baby boy. She names him Samuel or Shmuel because Shmuel means God listened to my prayer. But then she has to keep a promise. So when he's just three years old, Samuel is given over to God. How so? Hannah brings Samuel, little baby, three years old, to Eli HaKohen, to the priest of the time, and says, yeah, he's yours. He can serve in the tabernacle with you, and he'll be devoted to God. So now he's staying in the tabernacle. At the age of nine, more or less, he goes to sleep at night. All of a sudden, he hears someone calling his name, Samuel, Samuel. So he doesn't know who may have been calling his name. He says, well, the only one here in the tabernacle that's with him is Eli, the high priest. He goes to Eli and says, did you call me? Eli says, no, what are you talking about? Go back to sleep. I didn't call you. He goes back to sleep. And again, he hears that same voice, Samuel, Samuel. He doesn't understand what's happening. Suffering from schizophrenia. So he goes back to Eli. Did you call me? No, go back to sleep. Finally, a third time, Samuel, Samuel goes back to Eli, and Eli says, look, if you heard this a third time, maybe it is God calling you. So if you hear that voice again, just say, Hineni, here I am. And of course, Samuel goes back to sleep. He hears that voice again shouts out Hineni, and at that moment, Samuel becomes a prophet. Why do we read this on Rosh Hashanah? Because Rosh Hashanah is the holiday where we go inwards, where we leave Adam 1 aside for a second, and we go to the Adam 2 and ask ourselves, are we developing that Adam 2 enough? Are we even listening to Adam 2, to its needs, to its desires, to its obsession to fulfill its mission here in life? Unfortunately, we may realize on Rosh Hashanah, when we do that exercise, that we very often put Adam too back to sleep. Just like Samuel put God back to sleep. But that soul continues to haunt us. It says, no, I haven't forgotten about you. Listen to me. And we put him back to sleep again. Listen to me and we put Adam too back to sleep again. But eventually on Rosh Hashanah we realize that at one point we have to say, Hineni, here I am. And when we say, here I am, at that moment, we become prophets. At that moment, we become the great ones we were born to become. I want to conclude with 
a story since I was born in France, a story that moved me profoundly. But this is a story about the Cardinal of Paris, a love of Shalom, of blessed memory. The Cardinal of Paris was Jewish, was a man named Jean-Marie Lustiger, also known by his Hebrew name as Aharon Lustiger. I'm not sure you're familiar with this story, but it's a fascinating story. See this? Aharon Lustiger was hidden by a church during the war. And after the war, he realized that his family was completely decimated. So the church convinced him to stay. And soon enough, he became a priest. Soon thereafter, he was offered to become a bishop. But then he had a life crisis in 1979 that he writes about in his biography. And he says, maybe I should move to Israel, go and study Hebrew and explore my own tradition. This was his soul speaking, no doubt. But they bribed him too strongly. They showered him with all of these promises, and he became that bishop. And then he was again upgraded to the level of cardinal, to the point that many said that he may become the next pope. Imagine, you would have had a Jewish pope. <laughs> but Aaron Lustiger, by the way, the, the joke in Paris, I remember growing up, the joke in Paris was when people would ask you, do you know what the difference is between the Cardinal of Paris and the Chief Rabbi of Paris, who, by the way, was Sephardic? The difference was that the Cardinal of Paris speaks Yiddish, and the Chief Rabbi of Paris does not. <laughs> but, tragic story. But in 2004, the Jewish community decided to honor Cardinal Lustiger. Or Lustiger. How so? They had a very complex relationship with him. But they decided that on Yom HaShoah, on Holocaust Day, they would ask him to read the list of some of the victims of France. Now, they planted a bomb in that list. What do I mean by that? They planted the names of his own family members. And there you saw Aharon Lustiger reading the list. And when he reached the names of his family, he just could not continue on further. He began to sob like a little child. He had to give that list over to someone else to continue to read. And there you saw both the power and the tragedy of the Jewish soul that was left abandoned for reasons beyond a mind. But I'm sure it made an impact. Because fast forward to his funeral in 2012, Aharon Lustiger, to the astonishment of the church, asked that a rabbi come say Kaddish at his funeral. Now explain to me, this is a man who seemingly abandoned his faith quite convincingly. But at his funeral, he needs a rabbi to come say Kaddish. Just like my friend Sherwin Bash, who had something in him, ask for a rabbi. My friends, the conclusion from this is that we each have a soul. We may acknowledge it or not. But if you do, I promise you, you will find meaning and purpose. I promise you, you will reach a level of wholesomeness in which you will look at yourselves in the mirror and you will see a true panim. And I promise you then that our soul, will, our world, sorry, will become more soulful and certainly much more illuminated. I thank you very much. Thank you. 
please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.